Hi there and welcome back to the ESPN Footy Podcast. Hello everybody, welcome to the ESPN Footy Pod again. Proudly sponsored by Subway, nothing's as big as a footlong. Matt Walsh, Christian Jolly and Rowan Connolly here with you today. And there's a bit to get to despite the smaller slate of games we had for round 13. We're going to talk North Melbourne. We're going to talk some Bailey Smith, the AFL's poor bye week scheduling, the Powers struggle and maybe even some Socceroos. Rowan, you got up nice and early to watch uh, Australia beat Peru, didn't you? I did. It was a good moment, wasn't it? Up there with uh, Redmayne, now the new Aloisi moment. We're going to see that meme for the next 10 years, I reckon. It was um, It was a moment where it could have gone either way and it would have lived in either folklore or infamy for the for the rest of the Socceroos' existence, really. Well, as someone who's seen the Socceroos consistently fail to qualify for World Cups prior to this more modern success, I, I was well and truly resigned to it being a disaster. So I, I still can't quite believe it, but uh, I'm glad I got up for it. Yeah, and I'm now ready for bed already. I think I've been, <laughs> <laughs> I've been up since about 3.30, so I'm, I'm just about ready. Christian, you had a bit of a sleep in, uh, fortunately for you. Yeah, I didn't. Uh, unfortunately, didn't get up and watched it. But yeah, straight onto the radio to hear the results. And uh, yes, yeah, also seen some vision from uh, some of the celebrations at Federation Square. And yeah, it's obviously um, exciting times. I've got to say, I didn't. I wasn't confident going going into watching that. I know this is turning into a bit of a football podcast. And if you do want to listen to some football related podcasting, the national curriculum is part of ESPN's uh, uh, podcast suite. And the guys there do some wonderful stuff and they'll be doing a full recap of the Socceroos win. So make sure you get around the national curriculum as well wherever you get your podcasts. But before we do move into footy, um, I wasn't confident. And it surprised me just how boring Peru played. And, and, and for, for a team or a nation so football mad to sort of come out and just have a lack of desire and, and, and will to play uh, exciting round of football and try and actually put a winner past Australia, it was really disappointing. No, we, we were definitely the more enterprising team and and you're right and I was thinking afterwards I mean the um, consequences of that for Peru I mean that's almost enough to stage a coup over there <laughs> like there'll be some pretty upset people so On well well done well done us you know <laughs> like we, we've ritually had to beat you know we had to beat Argentina once and we've had to beat Uruguay over there and and uh, so we fixed up a couple now in a row. So well done, Australia. Back to Qatar in November. Uh, some footy. Christian, something from the weekend that you noticed? Um, well, I've got one courtesy of my five-year-old son, actually. Um, Love a contribution. Well, yeah, I don't know if I've ever thought of it this way, but we uh, probably worked out together, put our heads together and worked out there's only one team in the AFL that's nickname doesn't end in S. Power. Correct. Yes. And it was just something he's learning his letters and he's learning his reading and he just went, oh, okay, so they all end in S, do they? There's, there's a blues and he's fascinated by the Dockers because he has no idea what a Docker is. But yeah, uh, there you go. So Power's the only team that yeah doesn't have a plural for their nickname. So it's just something from, that's uh, a contribution from Riley, my son. But another one I've noticed, they didn't, um, well, they played on Friday night. But yeah, Carlton and just looking at meters game from handball. So there's always a team, we talked about Richmond, um, gaining so many metres from handballs per game. Carlton are actually negative 10 metres gained for the year from handballs. So they're fourth for handballs with 1,955 handballs by hand. But yeah, overall, the, the actual metres gained is negative 10. So there's always one team that's actually gone backwards more than they've gone forwards with handball. That's interesting because you're right and you look at trends over the course of the year and Richmond was so strong. I think we labelled it the Tiger tidal wave at one point because they were literally almost double the next best side. 
for handball meters gain, and that's that's meters gain by handball and then running and then handballing. Um, so for Carlton, do I think I guess spread out the stoppage more or, or look behind to open up a bit of space and then hit an uncontested mark? Clearly shows a, a how how footy is developing and how the the way to win and become a successful side. I mean, they're fourth at the moment, uh, is changing over the years. Yeah, we talk about it. You, you play to your strengths. I mean, I know a lot of teams try to always recreate what the premiers do, mm. uh, but you have to look internally and look at the the list that you've got and play to your strengths. And yeah, Carlton are doing it sort of the opposite way that you know has been won in previous years. But again, their their handball game is so scintillating and it's is is exciting to watch. But they're actually not taking huge meters gain from handballs alone. Interesting. Hey, just on your first thing you noticed, um, I, I know you, you've, you've tipped me over because currently the um, the NHL Stanley Cup finals are on. And this is the first time I think in NHL history that the two teams involved don't have a, a logo or a team uh, nickname that ends in S as well. Because it's the Colorado Avalanche against the Tampa Bay Lightning. The Lightning. So there you go. It's normally it's plurals. Yeah. How do you how do you come up with mascots for like a, a lightning, okay, a, a thunderbolt, but how do you had what's the costume for an avalanche? Yeah, it's a good point. I don't know what their um what their how, how, mascot what, is. What does the avalanche ruckle look like? <laughs> is it like a, a cascade of snow or <laughs> I'll have to do a bit more research into that. Um but yes you can catch that on ESPN as well if we're gonna keep throwing the plugs in. Uh, every game of the Stanley Cup finals will be on the channels. Uh Rowan, something from the weekend that took your fancy. Um well I'm enjoying talking about all these other sports, <laughs> but uh you guys are way too young to appreciate this, but I I'm getting a bit of a back to the 70s vibe in that Carlton and Collingwood are both up there and about and there's a real buzz about them and their fans are up and about. And the other common denominator with the 70s is that my team Essendon is crap. <laughs> so uh, I'm sort of partially enjoying... I do, look, I've got to admit, I do enjoy watching uh, a resurgence of teams or teams that have been down sort of re-emerging. And that's why, you know, I really enjoyed what Melbourne did last year, enjoyed what Richmond did a few years before. Um, again, there's just a common denominator in one team. It doesn't seem to climb out of the wilderness, and we all know who that is. Mm. And, you never um, see all like you know big clubs all together all having strong seasons. As one not switch. not often. I mean, there were some incredible record when Richmond started rising about it. Had been thirty or forty years or something since Richmond, Collingwood, Carlton had all been up. But uh, mm. uh, unfortunately, the one constant of this new millennium <laughs> is that Essendon is always down. Uh, I'm going to we... just keep doing those Essendon jokes. Well, I was going to say, season. before we get into too much more, what did you make of the 150th celebrations? I thought they were actually quite well done. Oh, no, that was good. It, it, no, it was really good. I thought um, uh, Briggs was, yep. was a good narrator for it. Well, look, one thing I would say, it was very Kevin Sheedy heavy. Okay. Um, and I think there's a, a, a bit of a marketing bent there to people that sort of are more familiar with that era. Um, the other thing, they're, they're, actually, this is a criticism. They made Kevin Sheedy an official immortal of a club. And don't get me wrong, I mean, he's an incredible influence over that football club, but I'm not sure he should get that status before Dick Reynolds, a triple Brownlow medalist who coached them to more premierships and played a record number of games, 320, 320 I think. Mm. Um, so, again, it, it's made me think it was a pretty marketing focus sort of decision that but look the celebrations and everything they did really well um it's just the football side of it that they're having trouble nailing not that yeah. that's a priority or anything you know <laughs> the, the bombers of that era um kind of reminds me of the manchester united under fergie kind of thing where he was yeah. that that talisman lead figure and yeah. while you know he was obviously very successful at united but um there's that sort of more modern you could watch all of their games a lot more than you would of the, the Dick Reynolds era. You could see yeah. him go through all the highlights and sort of recency bias. We talk a bit about a bit of recency bias on this pod and how, you know, there's 
you know the good old days. Yeah, being and, but, being sheedy, and that actually becomes an ish, a problem of sorts. And I know your club, Carlton, has experienced. They're, they're very similar clubs in that respect, Carlton and Essendon. That mm. that enormous success from that not too distant era means that it's still touchable and. Yep. A lot of the people physically are still around the place, and the influence permeates, mm. and it makes it difficult to move on. And um, yeah, look, we'll come back and do a special Essendon podcast on all this stuff if you like. I've got, I could go for hours. Did good numbers on this. the last one you were in. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, something I noticed: uh, football players love their fashion a lot of the time. Um, they they you know like to express their sort of unique. Uh, enjoyments, but I wasn't sure about what Todd Goldstein was rolling on the weekend. He was interviewed on Channel Nine News at one point uh, throughout the weekend and was wearing at the same time Tampa Bay Buccaneers um, beanie and a New England Patriots hoodie. And I thought maybe if they're different sports, it would make a bit of sense. <laughs> uh, or if you know if they're the same uh, city but different teams, it would make sense. Uh, but instead, he's gone with two completely different teams. So it's clear he must just be a Tom, Tom Brady, Brady fan. fan. Yeah, I can't believe that. Uh, so we're up to NFL. We've done NHL. We've done some soccer. <laughs> what else so, have we got? Yeah. Yeah, you know what, though? Like, disturbing as this is, I reckon you're going to see more of that sort of stuff. Like, I, I know people, all my relatives are from Perth. Mm. I, I have relatives, i.e. hello mum, who will happily go from one club to the other one as long as it's a Western Australian club. So... I'm flip-flopping between... Yeah, yeah, so she's... My mum's been a West Coast supporter and my sister said to her, oh, you wouldn't be keen on watching the footy. And she, she said, what are you talking about? They're going great. She said, what, the Eagles? No, no, the Dockers. And she said to me, oh, no, why don't you change teams? I just got up and walked out. You know, I'm not coughing that. <laughs> Is that a thing in Perth? Oh, well, you could ne- I would never hear of that in Adelaide. I don't think you'd ever hear of a power well, fan. I think older fans, because older fans grew up... Right. Older Without. fans of footy in Perth grew up yeah. with a, a waffle team and a VFL team, yeah. and then the Eagles came in. Yeah. So I guess they've just gone, oh, we'll throw a fourth one into the mix, you know? Yeah. It's un-Australian, I reckon, Matt. Oh, there you go. Uh, it's interesting, isn't it, when you kind of get those sort of things? Like, I support uh, the Dallas Cowboys, for instance, but then the Columbus Blue Jackets in, in the NHL. So different cities, uh, but different different the cities Columbus in the same... Columbus Blue Jackets. Yeah. Yeah, a bit of a niche kind of there we are, ice hockey. We're back on that again. Uh, let's get let's get into things. Uh, we've got a new ladder leader, um, which we thought maybe three or four weeks ago we, we would not have thought would happen uh, this season because the D's were runaway favourites of the flag, but now they're three losses in a row. Uh, Brisbane is now on top by 0.2 of a percentage point. And how things have changed in just three weeks, Christian. The makeup of Melbourne's side without Stephen May, it looks completely different. They've, they've ten and, and zip without him, and uh, with him rather, and zero and three without him. Um, it, it's just almost a, a bizarre kind of fall from grace that we've seen from them. And you've almost got to thank, you know, the, the three teams, Rio and Collingwood, the teams that have beaten Melbourne recently, just for opening up the competition again, because exactly that, we were sort of saying, well, We've got Melbourne. How far ahead are they from Brisbane? And how far is Brisbane ahead from the rest? But within three weeks now, we're back to this exciting competition of, okay, the the team that was untouchable is now very, very much gettable and touchable. Uh, We spoke about Brisbane a little bit last week. You know, they've had a few defensive um, issues in recent weeks. I know they they sort of uh, kept St Kilda to a low score and made it hard for them to score. But even Brisbane's sort of not flying, um, you know, the best that they could either. So... Yeah, recent weeks I feel like footy's got gotten more exciting again, and the season's back um, back to being live. But yeah, you sort of talk about Melbourne and what has happened to them in the last three weeks, and we've sort of spoken about it even when they did win their seventeen odd in a row, and you know coming off a premiership, very much like Richmond in previous years, they did give teams a chance. So they weren't 
I mean, they were number one for contested possession differential, but they weren't number one for disposal differential or inside 50 differential. They weren't sort of dominating territory in that. The big thing they they were hanging their head on, they were the best team defensively. No team was harder to ever score against from once you got it inside 50. They just didn't didn't allow scores. And obviously, Stephen May, yeah, being out for the last three weeks has got to be a huge reason for it. But that's dropped to their... They're now the 10th best defensive team um, at stopping a score once the opposition gets inside 50. So again, come back to the pack there. And you look at the other end for scoring once inside 50, throughout their dominance, or for the first 10 rounds, they were ninth for scoring from inside 50. So they weren't, the, again, not the most potent team that when they got inside 50, you were afraid they were going to score. They were, as I said, ninth, so very mid-table. Dropped to 17th this year, so we, uh, in the last three weeks. So again, you look at the two bookends and just what's happening at either end. Their defense is starting to leak a few more scores. And their offense is sort of, you know, dropped from mid-table to second last. And it's just had this cascading effect. That, that to me, is the key. It's the forward end. And I'll, I'll give you that stuff about the defence. But I thought they went, they definitely went up a cog last year after Brown came back into that side and found a bit of form from about around 16 or 17 onwards. And him struggling, you know, he didn't kick a goal for three games or whatever until Monday. They just, they seem to me to have lost that potency. It's like they've not just lost his contribution, but... Pickett seems more subdued. Fritch seems more subdued. You know, it was when they had Brown as a serious target, Gorn slash Jackson, Fritch, Pickett. McDonald. Uh, McDonald's the other one. Sorry, I, I meant to mention him. You know, so that that falling away of their, their scoreboard potency, I reckon, is a, a huge yeah. factor. And, you, and, I mean, I talked about how well they scored, you know, you know, how they were mid-table for scoring per inside 50. But what they did do is they might not have scored on that first entry, but they were great at locking it in. So... They, across the first 10 rounds, they were sixth with 30 forward half intercepts per game. Um, so again, 30 times the opposition's trying to get it out of their back half. Melbourne were able to chop it off and sort of, you know, that usually creates another scoring chance. They're down to 13 per game across the last three weeks. So, you know, dropped almost by a third um, from where they were at. So again, they're not scoring once they get it in there, but they've also lost that structure to keep that ball down that end for that just that little bit longer to try to get that second or third opportunity to score. For a team that also likes to uh, rebound from the back half and, and take intercepts and, and you know have players that are strong at that, to then not have to have players who are not as strong, you're giving the opposition a sniff too in their forward line because you know pressure-wise, they haven't really statistically been a strong pressure team all season, but their pressure's now at... at almost record low levels. I think they're 18th. They're, they are 18th. They, they've dropped from 16th to 18th. So they never had this Which has high, never hurt them before. Yeah, they because... never had high-end pressure, exactly, because they were sort of happy to let the ball carrier get away into a little bit of space, but they were going to chop off the next kick or they'll be 30 metres, 40 metres down the line. But now they're getting burned. Again, and whether that's just, you know, you'd have to watch a lot of tape to sort of figure out the loss of Stephen May, what that what that means to Jake Lever's role, what that means to Petty's role, what that means to... Even someone like Ed Langdon, that defensive winger where he might have to go a bit deeper just to sort of, you know, to, to help out where May isn't playing at the moment. And it's all, as I said, it's just that cascading effect of taking one little bit out and that, that was so super strong defensively, as, as I said, you know, historic highs in terms of how hard they were able to score. It's just, it's just gone to mid-table, but it's actually sort of made the team sort of, yeah, crumble around it almost. You know, the, the other thing I noticed, and I don't know if it's something you can measure statistically, but they just look a lot more fumbly to me. Like uh, Harms, there was a critical moment at which Harms fumbled, I think, and maybe cost him a goal. Uh, Jordan fumbled a couple of times. Even Petrarca had mm. that one where he yeah, double-grabbed it, I think, in the goal square. It was an open goal. Is that? I just wonder if that's sort of a, a symptom of, with each successive loss, the confidence just drops a little bit. 
But one thing I've noticed during that 17 wins in a row, you know, their skills are so spot on and so sure. They've really lost that the last couple of weeks. And I, I really noticed that against the Pies, just the fumbliness. Yeah, well, I mean, the numbers I've got are probably the other way is how clean their opposition's become. So again, I find this hard to, you know, if I was a coach, I wouldn't know how to sort of put things in place to fix this. But first 10 rounds, their opposition was hitting the target 65% of kicks, which ranked Melbourne third defensively. Uh, in the last three weeks, they've hit the target with 72% of kicks, which is 17th. And we spoke about after Frio beat them, Frio almost beat them in a half, and it was like an 81% kicking efficiency. We said Frio just were perfect. And I, I thought it would be hard for any other team to recreate what Frio did in that half. So we sort of spoke about on the pod that week, how do you beat Melbourne? I said, well, the way Frio did it is they played perfect footy and just didn't make a mistake. Well, we've seen it follow up for another two weeks with teams doing that. So again, there's a little bit of... Um, yeah, taking away from Melbourne's, you know, skill has probably dropped off slightly, but their opposition has really, again, probably taken a step back and realised, all right, when, there's not that much pressure on us from Melbourne, so let's actually take our time and hit the targets mm. and work it more carefully. And as I said, to sort of, you know, only I think West Coast are sort of allowing more kicks to hit the target in the last three weeks than Melbourne. So teams are actually starting to take their chances. So the race for the top spot is still clearly on. The race for the top four is on. But the race for the top eight is also looking interesting because there are currently 12 teams with a percentage of 100 or better. Um, the Gold Coast Suns are 11th at the moment with 24 points. They're just one game out of the out of the eight uh, with a game to play in the bye. The bye weeks make it a bit difficult to look at this sort of stuff. But there's a bunch of teams anywhere from 5th to, to, to 12th can kind of still make it. I was having a play with the ladder predictor which is you know not at all scientific but it could be it could come to the down to the fact that if you've got 13 wins you could still miss out on finals which is bizarre and and you look at the two teams down the bottom and clearly obviously there's a bit of an imbalance when it comes to how bad some of the teams are but in this middle band any team can kind of beat any other team on any given day and we've seen what the pies have been able to do in the last few weeks uh, the tigers have started to look a lot better and, and have a, a tough tough uh, match up this week um, the suns have a soft draw home it kind of has this sort of interesting confluence coming towards the pointy end of the season, well, which I'm really looking forward I to. I think there's almost a 13th team in this discussion in terms of we'll see it from this weekend is GWS and the improvement they've made um, with a change of coach. So they might not make finals. They might be too far back. But again, start this week with a game against the Bulldogs. They beat the Bulldogs and they put the Bulldogs two or three games out of the eight. And I think the next week... Um, or in a couple of weeks' time, I think they also have uh, Richmond or, or Geelong or something coming up. So again, they have a lot of games where they could actually influence the top eight as well. But even looking at it, I mean, we start with Thursday night. Carlton, I know, are fourth and a little bit safer than Richmond, but that's a big game, followed by, as I said, Giants and Bulldogs on Saturday. And then the next week, I think, yeah, Richmond played Geelong, which is another. There's what, you know, what people sort of call eight-point games. There's almost one or two of those each week, and that's what keeps the season exciting. The other element to it, too, is uh, a lot of those clubs are... Uh successful recently you know so you've got Richmond three premierships Bulldogs won a premiership and Collingwood I know they've got some young players but still plenty of players who were part of that 2018 experience grand final so you know if they get there they're not just necessarily going to make up the numbers they're actually half a chance so that gives it a an added dimension as well and and then you've got the new look of the Suns Um, I must say though so in terms of who will get there I, I tend to lean towards the more experienced team. I, I, I'm pretty confident Richmond's going to get in there at someone's expense. Yeah, I think there's a bit of um, romanticism around the Suns. It would be fun uh, to see them at the finals for the first time. But as I said, like the fact that there are so many clubs still in the hunt and percentage-wise, I think you had a stat, Christian, on, on the percentage, and it's the most teams with a percentage over 100 since 
yeah, well, 20 yeah, something rather. 12 teams over 100% um, after 13 rounds, which is, yeah, the first time since 2013. And again, it we sort of talk about it. Yes, there's a, there's a glut of even teams at the top, but it's also helped by the two teams at the bottom almost inflating the numbers. So again, 2013, we had Melbourne and GWS as the, the last two teams with average losing margins of 73 points and 69 points um, between them. And this year, it's West Coast and North Melbourne who have average losing margins of 62 and 56. So those are the only two seasons since 99 that we've actually seen two teams um, at round 13 with a, with losing margins above 55 points each. So again, coming up against West Coast North, a nice little percentage booster. But then you look at the top of the ladder and there's... Even though Melbourne were winning, they weren't winning every game by 10 goals or 11 goals, so they weren't putting dints in their opposition's uh, percentage either. So a nice even competition where you've got, as we're just speaking about now, you know, almost third to 12th are very, very, very even, but you've also got two teams where you can really cash in and, yeah, get a well, percentage you, you, you boost you when you get to, to play them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, from those teams at the top to the teams down the bottom, uh, North Melbourne's had a bit of a, a rough week because... Uh, their number one draft pick, Jason Horn francis is uh, in the media, under the spotlight, under the bloater, whatever you want to call it, Rowan. Uh, his his attitude on game day, his performances on game day, the whispers won't go away that he's still looking to move back to South Australia, whether it be at the end of this year or after his rookie deal is up. Uh, it just doesn't seem like it's a healthy place to be for him and for the club at the moment. No, it doesn't. Uh, nothing about that club looks healthy at the moment, unfortunately. And that that's a big difference this time. I, I've always felt with North that the, you know, as a club that's stuck fat, and you you're getting a different impression this time. It, there there is it's hard to believe there isn't some sort of disconnect between the playing group and the coaching staff. That's one. The administration, well, I don't know if there's a disconnect going on there too. The you know minor tiff between Goldstein and Horn Francis that didn't worry me that much because I reckon those things can get a bit overplayed and it's not uncommon to see teammates sort of have a disagreement with each other but it's more the the body language and the lack of sort of mm. he's I, I reckon Horn Francis is an unusually passionate sort of guy for a young player I think the young players today I look at them and they tend to be more robotic almost he's got a bit of passion about him so when I see him looking disinterested and sort of sooky, yeah. I think, gee, there's trouble afoot here. Yeah, it's... it's, And I know that he's only 18. It's his first year of footy. Um, there's a lot of pressure on him. There are all these sort of other factors on it. But you, it, when, it, when you look at the eye test, it doesn't quite pass when, you, when you're looking for your younger players to show a little bit, show a bit of interest. Like, he's 10 games into an AFL season, probably his dream job since he was, you know, 10 years of age. And... I know that the club's not doing too well, and Christian, you're going to touch on this a little bit later about how some of their their veterans are performing and their, how their game style is just not helping anyone in that in that uh, that club at the moment. But I would just like to see a bit more, you know, come on boys, come with me from a guy like that. And I know that he's only young, but this is a guy that you know was the consensus number one and and will be a you know superstar of the game and all this sort of stuff. And I just feel we're not seeing the best from him mentally that we could see. No, and if I was someone at North, I'd be pointing at a guy like Davies Uniac and going, there's your there's your example, mate. Because, I mean, he, you know, when was he drafted? 2017? Mm. He's done it tough in a side that's really been poor his whole career, and yet he's been able to consistently improve, and he's now a genuine yeah. leader of that side. So, you know, surely, I'm sure someone is, would be pointing Horn Francis to Davies Uniac or get him to take him under his wing or something. But... You know, you have to be able to perform at a professional level, whether 
your whole environment is cushy and 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 going well or not. And yeah. I guess as a number one draft pick, um, you sort of get used to things being set up for you. And and his induction to AFL football has been anything but comfy, hasn't it? You know? Yeah. Well, it doesn't help when your leaders like Jack Zebel six touches, um, Josh Walker six touches, Jaden Stevenson five touches, uh, Horn Francis himself eight, Greenwood eight. <laughs> It's it's hard to be a young player looking for this guidance when you're probably not getting some back in the other direction, though, Christian. And you you were at the game on uh, Saturday and Sunday? Sunday, Sunday. Yeah, Sunday. What day is it today? Tuesday. <laughs> uh, and you saw some worrying signs, but but not just from you know, individuals, but from a team perspective as well. Yeah, well, again, yeah, you're right. On, on Sunday, I just thought the, the little things with Horn Francis. Again, I'm a numbers man. I stick to the stats and sort of, you know, I think a lot of a lot of things can be... Uh, misread and you know highly interpreted by the media just for headlines. But I was watching Horn Francis and just little things like when he came on the ground after an interchange move, there was no little high five with the guy he was subbing with. There was no sort of bat, you know pats on the back as he sort of ran past players that got back into the play. He was there was a lot of pointing and shouting and you know he's obviously engaged in the in the team setup. Uh, but yeah, actually just going over to a, a teammate and sort of just having that chat in between goals. He sort of stood by himself. Um, Half time, I missed the Goldstein thing. I didn't see that live at the ground, but full time, I did notice he sort of stood a good five or 10 meters just off the rest of the players. And it was just very obvious to me that he wasn't engaged um, with the players and the personnel. As I said, I, I did see a lot of pointing and, you know, instructions of where to stand and stoppages. So he obviously under, understands the game plan and knows what, you know, how to sort of instruct players to get to where they need to be. But, yeah, they just, you know, just a, a little thing like friendships. It just didn't look like there was a whole lot of love and friendship out on the field in, in that one game. And, again, it, I, you know, first game I've been to, especially for North Melbourne, that I've seen them play live this year. So I can't say I've seen it every week. But... It was something I did notice, and it started with just the interchange moves, just the way he sort of ran on and almost with a two- or three-metre gap with the guy coming off. But you're right, we talk about North Melbourne, and I feel like even here on the podcast, it, they've been down the bottom for the last two years, and we've given them enough time now to sort of say, well, we know that you're a struggling club and you're rebuilding, but I sort of almost hit you up, Matt, and said, we've got to start talking about them because now they've got a body of work over the last two years. I mean, I'm using numbers from this year alone, but there, there's nothing there that sort of shows you what they're building on so again as a bottom team you might want to build on on just being able to restrict back half scores you know so you don't want teams to be able to go the end and end to end and sort of score against you I mean north the easiest or second easiest side to score against from the back 50 they're the second easiest side to score against from clearance easiest side to score against from turnover even the fourth easiest side to score from kick-ins which we don't see a lot of scores from kick-ins but again just struggling to sort of defend that um, easiest side to score against from defensive mid, which is your sort of centre half back. Um, you know, easiest side to sort of win a centre bounce clearance and go inside fifty against. So there's there's just there's no setup there where you sort of say, okay, North are at least fifteenth or fourteenth or thirteenth, and it's something that they're clearly building on. So in terms of a structure and a game plan, it, it's very very hard to pinpoint exactly what they're trying to do. And that I mean, I started looking at the defensive side of things, looking at their ball movement as well. It's almost as you said, it's. It's their their own ball movement and game style is almost hurting suicidal. Them. Yeah, the it's numbers suicidal. are it's, unreal, it's, and it's it's just not so fair what, what on such a young team. What numbers particularly are suicidal? Yeah, so we look at how often a team uses the corridor coming out of the back fifty, and if you look at the top six teams, I think nearly all of them would be in the bottom eight for usage of corridor coming out of your back fifty. So you want to sort of go wide out of your back fifty, 
and then maybe cutting board as you get to forward half. So again, you, a lot of a lot more teams will be using the corridor to go inside fifty, but just avoiding the corridor coming outside fifty. North use the corridor the most of any team, um, so they try to use the corridor the most of any team, but they retain possession from fifty-two percent of their corridor usage, which is almost. 15, 20% below the comp average. So they, they're using the corridor more, but only hitting the target and 52% for no of the time. Correct. And when they do hit that target 52% of the time, so they, they do get that next possession, three times they've been able to score from that for the whole year. Three scores have come out from... Out of how many? Again, I think it's about... If you combine there, they've, they've had 91 successful times, um, you so, know, plus another 150 where they've... you know, So, so about three a, out of... Yeah, 100, 200, 200 odd times that they've tried to they've come out of the corridor. From going they've, through the, they've scored the three times. So this is, this is a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because they would argue, and I look at my team, uh, the way they're playing at the moment, and I would argue this too, that you're better off... I, I would be happy for my team to get smashed if they're trying to be positive and attack. That's I'm sure that's what David Noble was arguing. Mm. What's the counter view, though? The counter view is you look at other teams that have gone through builds in recent seasons and the thought process has been to make the games a bit more scrappy. Try and get a an 8-12 to 12 goal win where you're scoring maybe 72 points and the opposition scoring 70 and really focusing on defence and really pushing out towards the boundary or having high stoppage games. Those kind of things where you can protect your percentage a bit. So it's, it's little wonder their percentage is hanging around 52, 54, whatever it might be. Yes, they're being daring, but... It's not even like it's not coming off some of the time. Mm. Three from 260-odd corridor entries, three mm. scoring from three times from 260-odd corridor entries and then being burned however many times yeah, on the way it's, back. It's, it's 42. They've, been, they've turned it over in the corridor 42 times, which is 10 more times than anyone else. So, again... You, it's diabolical. Yeah, it's it's it, one I, of those ones yeah. where... and I mean, it goes back to almost um, something we've talked about in the champion data offices for five or six years. When new coaches come around... Do you want to teach offense or defense first? Mm. And every coach has had a different sort of view on that. Um, but I, I think clearly with North Melbourne, again, it's hard to see where the defense is sort of, you know, built around. But clearly, I think they, they you're right. They, they've gone for the offensive sort of uh, tutorial first. Let's try to get the ball moving. Let's go hot. But there, there has to come to a stage where you do look at the numbers and think, well, this is actually how we're getting scored against We've got the to stem the bleeding. Yeah. So if you're not at least, you know, again, as a bottom team, you might go, okay, we're going to probably be beaten by two or three goals from these, you know, from these midfield turnovers. And that's okay. We can live with that. But continually that they're not scoring at all. And they're almost conceding, you know, 16 to 18 points per game from turnovers in it, the corridor. It, it so. really is a double-edged sword, this. So it's a fascinating discussion because I, I always think back to Matthew Knights at Essendon. And he went sort of offense first, and he got canned for it. Like coaches who do that and mm. it doesn't work get treated far more harshly than coaches that are defense first. The other side of the coin, though, again, when I see teams that are sort of concentrating overly on defense to the point where it looks like they're not going to win, they're just going to limit the damage, and that's what I think Essendon's done the last few weeks, that to me, the long-term effect of that can be cancerous as well because you instilling a negative mindset in your players and they lose the enthusiasm yeah. to play. Well, it's hard, it's hard to, to measure because, yeah, because Collingwood's got to change a coach. But I think that's where Collingwood found themselves for the last two years. And again, they were really, really good defensively with the ball. They, they moved slow. They weren't going to try to outscore you. They were just trying to limit your score. And, you know, but, but they were sort of one of the hardest teams to score against. Now they're sort of, they've added the offense with Craig McRae, but they're still fourth for pressure. They're one of the hardest teams to score. So they've got that defensive mindset that was instilled from them from, you know, from Nathan Buckley for the last two or three years. And then you've got uh, Craig McRae has come in and said, all right, 
this is how I want to move the ball, and I want to be a bit more excited when we move the ball. But we're not going to lose what we've also done yeah. for the last three years with defence. So it is, it's having that basis. And again, that's why we look at North, young team, young coach. There's nothing that they can base themselves on. They don't have a an, an experienced back six where it's like, it's all right, we can try to go through the corridor because we've got these guys, you know, our best players behind the ball, which they sort of had Jack Zebel down there last year. He's now gone forward and having very little impact. So again, it's, it's that whole, well, and you know, starting to see it with Horn Francis and maybe a few of the other defenders, are you just letting him, you know, just leaving him out to dry way too often to sort of get that buy-in from the players to see, okay, I get what we're doing now. In 40 games, this is going to help us. I look at North and it's almost like, well, each week we're just getting smashed. How is this going to help us in and two or three weeks' time? Is the coach going to last 40 games to be able to build on to it? To build on the defence, yeah. Uh, it's un- it's an unwittingly sort of throwing the defenders to the lines, Den, though, because if you yeah. are playing such a... Like, there's, there's playing offensive footy and trying to te- teach offensive tactics, but then there's turning it over in the corridor you know, 46 times and, and getting scored against what, like what, that. Look, what, one thing I hate about this when it comes to North Melbourne is that whenever they struggle, it inevitably turns the narrative towards oh, yeah. the future of the club. Yeah. And I, I I hate that because it sort of hijacks the conversation. And their supporters must hate that. As well. I've got a lot of time for North supporters. You know, they've been, I don't want to sound condescending here, They've been, but they've been incredibly loyal and they know where they're at. Yeah. And... You know, to the moment there's a hint of trouble for some hero in the media to sort of start talking about relocation or whatever, it's pretty annoying. Now, to be fair, their crowd on the weekend was, you know, small when you look at it, but when you compare it to, uh, you know, long weekend, people might be away. Uh, they got more to the, the ground on Sunday than they got against Melbourne. Yeah. So, you know, for it's a, always a, GWS fans. Correct. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, you can't, you can't say that they're not sort of turning up and at least trying to do their part. So, yeah. Uh, look, you know, stick fat. Maybe the defensive aspect will come soon, but there are some worrying trends on that offensive side of the ball. Uh, moving on, Rowan, Bailey Smith, uh, the drug saga sort of came to light uh, late last week and how he has uh, taken a ban for, for use of cocaine during the off-season. A couple of schools of thought that have been sort of making the tr- the, the way around on Twitter and, and through other bits of social media and through footy fans is, you know, you've got to leave him alone because they're not performance-enhancing drugs. It was during the off-season. He's had mental health issues. You know, this sort of coverage is worse for the mental health and it exacerbates it. And then there's sort of another school of thought that I've seen. It's, it's you know, how dare he play the mental health card. He's a you know rich footballer. He goes out partying. He does drugs, party drugs, this sort of stuff. Um, you can't play the mental car- health card when others have it a lot worse. It's a, it's a can of worms when you open it when it comes to illicit drugs in footy. And then when they're not performance enhancing, it's a completely different kettle of fish, obviously. Where do you where do you stand on how the AFL approaches illicit or recreational drug use and, and how it's then reported through the media? I, I'm very much in the former camp, which is I, basically I trust health professionals to do the right things. And I get a bit miffed when I start hearing... You know, former players turn media commentators, but even coaches and officials of clubs saying, you know, this the drug code's a joke and we've got to do this and we'll do that. Well, I'm sorry, mate. You're, like, you're not a qualified health professional. You don't know how big a factor mental health plays in drug abuse. And, you know, my understanding, everything I read about it, tells me that the two things are often inextricably linked. So they can't be separated. So for people to say, oh, he's playing the mental health card... I, I wouldn't be prepared to do that. We don't know, not many of us, hardly any of us know Bailey Smith intimately enough to know to what extent his mental health has been affected. Mm. I would say he's been very upfront in 
discussing that. Yeah. I guess the cynical would say he's done that because he knew this stuff was going to come out. But I'm prepared to. I think he's a pretty intent, intelligent, sensitive young guy. I'm prepared to take his word on it. But I sort of feel about this one the same way I did about, I guess, about the pandemic and about the reporting of that. That you know, there's a lot of experts without the shadow of qualifications who are sort of talking from self-interest. And as far as lockdowns and stuff, whatever, it was inevitably their business interests. Well, people at club level talking about drug use, they're talking about their own interests, as in we want access to our player and we want to know exactly what's going on. Well, it's a medical issue, mate. You know, confidentiality. Just because you have a football player as a professional and your employee doesn't mean you get access to his entire private life. We're all entitled to some confidentiality so I'm prepared to take what Bailey Smith said on this at face value and I I must say and I I get this impression I think a lot of people sort of feel this way I was quite impressed with what he had to say in response I thought it was a fairly mature I thought the the club as well yeah. Was very, yeah, very mature. Yeah. We've seen what uh, what what um impact some of this stuff can have where pardon me, that's just my phone going off in the background. Uh where you've had players like Ben Cousins clearly had a lot of issues with drug and substance abuse and then his mental health, you know, ended up in jail, all this sort of other stuff. Sam Fisher more recently, former St Kilda player has you know, had abuse issues and, and again uh, had mental health troubles. I think the key should be in these sort of situations is to Get the players to f- get the players right. Get them feeling right, yeah. uh, and all sort of secondary analysis and reporting and you know talks of banning him and all this sort of stuff comes way, way, way later. Well, that's why I'm a little bit. Again, I think I agree with a lot with what Rowan said, but the, the little thing of the clubs being able to know. And again, I know it's a medical issue, but they get medical reports from them from the time they're 14, 15, the way their their knees bend and elbows and everything else. So. Because the one thing to me is it usually comes back to the club of, oh, West Coast failed Ben Cousins. or I mean, I haven't heard the narrative too much, but you know St Kilda may have failed Sam Fisher because there was a little bit of signs. I think they've come out and said, you know, we did know later in his career that he was struggling with some of this stuff. And it sort of led and escalated outside of his career. So there's that double-edged sword of, yeah, we're not going to tell the clubs, but then sometimes three or four years later, we we blame the club or the, you know, or the media or that sort of drags the club through and says, well, they should offer more support. So I can almost see where Luke Beveridge is saying, well, we've got the we've got the 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 personnel and the structure to support the guy, mm. but we don't we don't get we're off You're the, in the last dark. to know. Yeah. No, yeah. That's, so that's I can see point. where, where the point. clubs are coming from just because of that that later down the track that, you know, again I think I've seen a great photo of Ben Cousins recently mm. uh with David Wirapunda and things like that. And, and I think it is, it's that connect with the people he knew at West Coast is getting his life back on track. So sometimes footy clubs can be everything they need um to get themselves back on track. But as Luke Beveridge is saying, that sometimes or quite often they're the last to know. I think that's a really good point, but you'd hate to get it wrong, wouldn't you? You'd hate to be the guy in a club that said, We need to know because we can help him. Yeah. And then it inevitably comes to light publicly and the guy can't cope with that and it ruins his life or, or perish the thought, ends his life. You'd hate to get that wrong. So I sort of think caution, uh, what's that phrase about caution, the better caution, the, the, the wind. better part of valour or something like that, oh, you know. Yeah, testing me. <laughs> be cautious, I think. Yeah. And, I, go, and go with what the, the doctors are saying. I think now that it's, I think it's seven years since the illicit drugs policy was last updated, I think it's probably about the right time to sort of revisit it and look at ways that you can improve it. Because in the last seven years, I think um, the way that the society approaches mental health has taken decent leaps and bounds, especially Mm. the last couple of years over a pandemic has kind of helped push that um, 
you know prioritizing one's mental health as well so so maybe we will see in in the coming year or so or however long it might take the afl to to look at this updated drugs policy we might see some improvements and you know what i'd say too if you're going to do that look at alcohol as well now i know one's legal and one is illegal or betting as well but but the bottom line is they can have a, a terrible impact on people so look at look at that as well don't just focus on the illegality of one and the because i would I would argue, surely, you know, binge drinking and out-of-season drinking is as big an issue as um, recreational drugs. Mm, Food for thought. Uh, We're flying through this episode, so we're going to have to try and whip through the next couple of things. Uh, Port, another loss on the weekend, Christian. We're putting a line through Port Adelaide at this point? For, the, for making finals? Three games out of the eight. Well, again, yeah, that was that was that big eight-point game I was talking about. You, they lost to Richmond, who were one of those teams that are trying to, you know, they're, they're competing against to get into that top eight. So uh, very close to putting a line through them. I think they got Sydney this weekend. Um, lose that one, and it's going to be very, very hard. Yeah, another team in that that cohort sort of chasing those those bottom four of the top eight spots. Yeah. So, and again, just, just looking at Port, and we, we spoke about them the last three years leading into this season, they, they probably had the best winning record of any team. So they've been quite strong uh, for a number of years now without sort of getting ultimate success. But this year there is, there's that drop-off of, you know, you look at their points for, they were um, ninth, third, and sixth the last three years. They dropped to 15th. Um, forward half, you know, turnover points has been able to sort of lock the ball in. They sort of dropped to their lowest point. In, it, it's eighth this year. It's a bit lower. But the one that number that I come across, and again, it's similar to what we were talking about Melbourne earlier, their scores per inside 50. So in the past, Port have been 15th, 7th, 13th in it. So it hasn't been their strength. They've just been able to dominate. They've been able to lock the ball in there, give themselves time to score. This year, they're 14th. So again, they're, they're similar for score per inside 50. But the thing is, they're in the negative for inside 50 differential for the first time in three years, down to 11th. So that's the big part of the game that really they need to step up. Um, is being able to lock the ball in their forward half because they've again they're, they're similar to Melbourne. They've never been the cleanest team inside fifty. Um, we know you know how good Robbie Gray is and things like that. But again, they're more of a scrappy team inside fifty. Get it in, get and lock it in there, uh, which they struggle to do. And again, looking at just their forwards or guys that play in the front half that are rate elite for pressure, they've got two at the moment, and it's Todd Marshall and Jeremy Finlayson. So it's their key forwards mm. who are again getting compared to other key forwards. They're really good at putting pressure on. But it's, I mean, Butters hasn't improved his pressure. Fantasia hasn't been there. Uh, Dersma's a little bit of a forward half pressure player. He hasn't, he hasn't um, been around or hasn't, you know, his form hasn't actually been good enough to get a game. Um, Carl Amon's sort of a very good pressure player, but doing a lot more around the midfield. Robbie Gray and Motlop have sort of dropped their pressure. So Gray's, I think that's... Gray's form. They need Jake Need back. Well, yeah, something similar. They, do, they just need that sort of that little I was going to ask you that, just as you said that about Finlayson and, um, who was the other one? Marshall. Marshall. Because in their turnaround, I looked at the fact that Georgiades, Marshall and Finlayson were starting to fire. And I thought, yeah, this is where it's coming from. But that's been without those ground level and small forwards doing their thing. So one can't fire without the other. Um, The other thing that always worries me about Port is, do they have enough quality midfielders? And that started to turn, you know, when the turnaround happened this year, it was because it became less dependent on Wines and Boak, wasn't it? You know, Butters, Rosie, etc. started having a bit more of a say. Has that fallen away the last couple of weeks? Well, again, looking at season totality numbers, you're right. So Houston was in there. Um, Butters, the only one that's really improved their midfield numbers is Rosie. So Houston and Butters are sort of plateaued. And again, Rosie's getting more time. So they haven't. They've, they've, they've had a few. Again, Amon's probably been, you know, he's, he's sort of underrated. He's sort of an elite winger when he plays off the wing. Willem Drew's gone backwards. Um, 
Boak and Wines are the same, but you're right, they've lost Lysette as well from the mm, Ruck. The, I think he's been a huge loss. The um, Ruck combo, and, and then also um, Peter Adams went up to Sydney as well. So they've, they've at the moment, their Ruck combo on, on Thursday night was Jeremy Finlayson and might have been Charlie Dixon at times. Which, so that's a baffling risk management thing. You've got a Brownlow medal winning go. midfielder yeah. um, who, who loves the contested ball, and if he can't get his hands on the footy first... But yeah, I think, and again, you talk about all those names. And the big thing with Port, I look at, I mean, I talk about some of their numbers are dropped off, but it's more that they've plateaued and every team's gone above them. So mm. again, you, you don't look at Port and go, geez, Robbie Gray's fallen off the face of a cliff or Ollie Wines just isn't the same as his Brownlee year. It's like, well, they're all slightly, you know, either the same or just slightly worse, but it's enough for all the other teams to be able to catch them and overtake them. Last question. Is it possible to talk about Port being in trouble, mention Dan Houston and not think Houston we have a problem? <laughs> you just can't do it, can you? That's good. Uh, he's been, he's been actually, funnily enough, probably one of Port's better players, especially in the last few weeks, uh, I feel. So maybe not he's got a problem, but Port... Definitely do. Mission controls going to do something. <laughs> uh, fixturing. We talked about Thursday night's game. Uh, there were only 21,700. Oh, I might be being generous. Lowest Richmond MCG crowd since 2010, I think. Yeah. We, we spoke about it last week on the pod, and I said they wouldn't get 30. And I said, a, I said, said 45. Yeah. If that oh, was well Saturday done. afternoon. Christian the crowd. No, well, that was the thing. It was almost like, well, if they get under 30, they're in big trouble. Yeah. I just, again, I just could it from... And again, I wanted to look at this before I got in. I didn't have time. Day crowds versus night crowds. I feel like the footy in the day is back. Yeah. Crowds want to go to the it's footy in, in the day. And yeah, oh, the, the pundit, you know, it's a really good discussion because the pundits reckon it's back. It never went away for us. We love Saturday afternoons and 2.10, but the broadcasters... But were the fans going, though? I think, and that's the thing. I think, Yeah, but they, were they putting the decent games on in those slots for them Thursday to go? Thursday night was Chicken always very popular when you're playing... Uh, when Port Adelaide or Adelaide was hosting because teams like that see their club once every two weeks and if it's on a Thursday night and they've got season tickets or, or, or membership for the year, they're going to go. Look, Whereas I, yeah. Richmond plays at the... How many times are they playing at the G on the on the way home in like, I think it was six, six of their last 16 games. more games there or something. So I, I just don't get this thing about putting Thursday night games during the buy rounds. There's six games played across five days. I mean, talking about trying to squeeze every last drop. So you have North Melbourne GWS as a standalone Sunday game. That's ridiculous. And yet we still got 70-plus thousand for the big queens. But, you know, and Friday night was 65, given where Essendon's at, was a pretty reasonable turnout. So, you know, can we not have a few days off? During winter as well, I think Thursday nights has a really great slot either during school holidays or early in the season, March, uh, April, when the weather's not outrageously bitterly cold on yeah. a school night. Yeah. Uh, 21,000, look, if you play that on a Saturday afternoon, two teams, Richmond and Port Adelaide, who are both in the fight for that, well, until this week, both in the fight for the eight, um, you're probably getting 40,000 there. Almost double. But but yeah. to, to Channel 7, the host broadcaster, I don't think they care because those extra play people who were not going would be watching on TV. And a couple of those afternoon, even slots are dodgy, I reckon. Like 3.20, too late for me. 4.45, even worse. Money you know, speaks. Uh, yeah, it does. And it, it's look, the AFL's always treading this fine line, isn't it, between live audiences and TV They've got audiences. to try and, uh, pat, you know, try and reassure both parties that, oh, we're all about the live experience, but then they want to say, well, actually, we're all about the broadcast experience. They're all about the broadcast experience, so, and it, I, I think rounds like this one just gone are the proof of it. But again, chicken and the egg, <laughs> when you broadcast a game with no one there, it loses its value. So even for the broadcast experience, they need fans to be there. That's a good point. Uh, Although, 
last two years when we played a lot of games fake without noises, literally crowds, anyone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, unless we haven't got the fake crowd track anymore because that was excruciating. Before we move on, the floating fixture, are we seeing the benefits of it? No. No, We've got I got a series so. of crap Friday night games. How did that work? I think it's time to just release the fixture in full again in October and people can plan their travel and enjoy the uh, the games again. But I how think. did that... How, I, I honestly don't understand. How we... Essendon, what, three Friday nights? How does that happen? Money speaks. Essendon have a lot of fans who don't want to go to the MCG in a wintry night in June. At the moment, mate, they've got a lot of fans <laughs> that don't even want to watch. Uh, let's move on. Is the hype justified or is it hyperbole? Uh, our favourite segment where I'll say a statement. You guys tell me whether the hype is justified or I'm speaking in hyperbole. Rowan, speaking of the Bombers, uh, according to some prominent media figures, especially out west, Essendon isn't copying enough criticism for its poor season. Do you agree? I- no, Ooh, I don't know what else I could have done short of leading a coup out to Tullamarine and sort of staging a military takeover. Uh, and by leading media figures, I think you mean Tim Gossage. I hope you're listening to this, Goss. Mate, what are you on? We are absolutely giving it to them at the moment, some of us. I know you follow me on Twitter, so you must have me on mute. But <laughs> I, I, I would have thought Essendon, for one, is copying plenty of criticism at the moment, wouldn't you? Uh, I would have thought so. Um but look, to be honest, uh, there's a bit of a disconnect, I think, between uh, some media figures, depending on where you are, and, and the chip on the shoulder of some over in WA. The media prompt, the media. Did he, he actually use the phrase "you Eastern Staters"? Too, oh, did he? I always love have. that. One. And I just like to point out, we love our Eastern, our Western state listeners. Uh, you guys are not the the problem at all. It's just some of these media types that uh, <laughs> can get into a bit of an argument. Get off bargy. the gas, Goss. Very good. Uh, get your footy tips in. Uh, as we've said, there's some Thursday night games. There's been Monday games. Uh, you never know when your the next game could be. So just get your tips in at footytips.com.au. You can tip with us, as we've said, throughout uh, at footytips.com.au forward slash the ESPN footy pod. Christian, thanks for bringing all your insight as per usual. And Rowan, good to have you in the studio. It's good to be in here. Yeah, a bit chilly uh, and a bit small, but it's better than being on Zoom. It is. To everyone at home, we'll speak to you in the next episode. Listen to all the latest episodes by subscribing to the ESPN Footy Pod wherever you get your podcasts.